Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to discuss for our care plans anything that's going to do with shoulder orthopedics. So this can be anything from arthroscopies of the shoulder, arthroplasty of the shoulder, a rotator cuff repair. Those are really the, the three main ones that we do. There are some other variations, but for the sake of this quick care plan, those are the three we're going to talk about. If you're going to be doing a arthroscopy of the shoulder, that's usually the quickest, and typically they'll be using this just to be more of a diagnostic procedure. They're going to put a camera in there, take a look around, see if there's any tears. Uh, if they need a rotator cuff repair, they could be doing that. Keep in mind that a lot of these are going to be doing smaller incisions and sticking these scopes through to take a look at things, but it could also convert to an open procedure, which may be more painful and cover more dermatomes that will need to be blocked when we do our anesthetic. But if they're just doing the punctures and going through small incisions with their scopes, you shouldn't need quite as much here. If they're going to be doing a arthroplasty, this is going to be more about the two to three hour range. Depending on the surgeon, it could alter the length of these procedures, but this is where they're going to be actually redoing the joint in that shoulder. And so those take the longest. But with each of these, we're all going to be in the same position. So Tanner, we'll just talk about positioning for these procedures. As far as positioning goes, there's two main ways that you can do this procedure. So the first way would be the beach chair position. This is where you're going to have the patient sitting up. And this is going to be a little bit more tenuous compared to the other position, which would just be lateral, where they have the patient's arm in a little bit of traction, and then they're able to work on the procedure field there in the lateral position. As far as the beach chair position goes, with the seated position, you really need to be thinking about cerebral blood flow. This is one of the main things that you need to consider in the beach chair position. So if you remember from our monitoring episode, we talked about the difference in blood pressure. Every inch that you go above the heart is going to be a decrease in two millimeters of mercury on their blood pressure. So just keep that in mind that there's quite a gradient there for them when they're sitting in the beach chair position. If you have the ability to monitor with invasive monitoring, you'll want to zero your transducer at the auditory meatus instead of the phlebostatic axis point. This is important so that you can get the blood pressure up at the head instead of down at the heart. As far as this position, there are some cardiac things to be thinking about. You're going to have impaired venous return due to a decreased stroke volume your cardiac output decreases quite a bit. This is mostly to do with the pooling that's going to happen in the lower extremities. As far as your lungs go, you can have actually an increase in your FRC. This makes sense because your abdominal contents and everything is going to be pulling away from your thoracic cavity and you're going to have better expansion there in your pulmonary system. When you're in the beach chair position, it's very important that you are paying very close attention to our nerve injury areas. So you need to think about their shoulders. You don't want their shoulders to be sagging too much and placing strain on the brachial plexus. You want to be careful that when their elbows are on those arm boards, that you're not going to have any issues there with your ulnar nerve or radial nerves. Also with them sitting in this position, you need to make sure that their knees are not going to be elevated to a point that would cause any compression 
of the femoral nerves or some stretch in the sciatic nerves. So this position has several different nerve areas that you need to be paying attention to and putting that all together for proper positioning. The other way we can do this is going to be in the lateral position. And so some surgeons like to place the operative side up and place the patient in the lateral position with a pillow or two between the two arms out on a arm board. And in these positions, you need to make sure that you're going to be taking the pulse oximetry in the dependent arms on the lower arm. And this is to make sure that we're adequately perfusing to this lower extremity. They're going to place a axillary roll and you want to make sure that you're not driving that axillary roll too far up into that armpit, which can also cut off some circulation and cause injury to the brachial plexus. Again, most of this you can find in our positioning lecture, but just keep in mind that you can do this in a lateral or the beach chair position. In terms of our anesthetic method or plan for this procedure, typically you'll do a general anesthetic plan with a interscaling block or even a suprascapular block. The interscaling block is going to be the highest point in the brachial plexus that we're going to block. But sometimes when we do this block, it won't cover the suprascapular area. So you have to do a suprascapular block as well if you want to do full coverage for this shoulder. So keep that in mind that ISB may not be enough, especially if they're going to go open and doing a lot of stimulation in the top and the back part of that shoulder, you really want to get that suprascapular block. When you're going to be determining the status of these patients in the preoperative area, you want to be doing your typical malampati score, your airway assessment, all of those. Also be checking their platelet levels uh, before you do that interscaling block. A lot of these patients are going to have some arthritis. They may show some signs of some pleural effusion, some pulmonary fibrosis. It's typical with that arthritis. Just keep in mind that if they have that arthritis, they may be a difficult intubation just due to a limited neck mobility. So it's important to ask if they're able to move their neck back and forth, left and right, up and down, just so that you don't bend their neck in a position that would be difficult for them to do naturally when they're asleep, then that they will uh, cause some trauma when they wake up. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Student Nurse Anesthesia Podcast. For more episodes, audible care plans, and other bonus content, go to patreon.com, search Student Nurse Anesthesia Podcast, and become a member. Once a member, you will have access to Student Nurse Anesthesia Podcast Premium, which includes all of our content ad-free right here on Apple Podcasts. As far as monitors, you're going to have a standard monitor set up. You'll have your non-invasive blood pressure monitoring. If you do have an art line for a more tenuous patient, then again, you want to zero that to the external auditory meatus. You'll have their ECG leads on, pulse oximeter. You may want a BIS for this procedure. And then also some people have talked about putting a precordial Doppler on. This is for one of the other complications that we'll talk about here in a second. But if you have a venous air embolism, the precordial Doppler is a nice monitor to have to pick up on this. And so this is something that some people will use as a standard monitor on these patients when they're in the beach chair position. During the procedure, again, Cole mentioned you'll typically do a general anesthetic with possible interscaling block and a suprascapular block. As far as the maintenance portion goes, you will typically keep these patients relaxed. This maintenance is typically with SIVO or ISO, whatever you guys use at your institution. As far as emergence goes, usually you can extubate these patients while they're still sitting up. There's not really any need to lay them back down. In fact, often this helps go through emergence nicely because they're sitting up, they have that increased FRC, they're able to breathe on their own easier while they're in this sitting position. Now let's talk about special considerations for these cases. Often surgeons will request a gram of transexamic acid 
when they're doing their incision or even just prior to the incision, and then one gram at the end of the procedure as well. And the purpose here is that it just prevents the breakdown of the clots that are being formed. For more about that, go check out our clotting cascade episode. That is a very descriptive episode on how the clots form and how they are broken down. Another thing that Tanner already kind of touched on is the venous air embolism. This is really anytime you have the patient in the sitting position. And so with that precordial Doppler, that's the most sensitive indicator to detect it. And you're going to really hear that mill wheel murmur. And that's why it's really helpful to have that precordial Doppler. I haven't really seen that used in practice much. Typically from what I've found is that they say this air embolism happens pretty much 100% of the time, just a matter of if there are big enough amounts of it to cause a severe reaction to occur. But if there is severe enough reaction, it's going to be a decrease in your end tidal CO2 very rapidly. You're going to have hypoxia, respiratory status will be decreased. You might see some rails, some wheezing, some tachypnea noted. And if you believe that you do have a venous air embolism, you want to immediately place the patient down in the Trendelenburg position, turn them on their left side, and give them 100% FiO2. And this really is to try to trap that air embolism in the right atrium. And then if you already have a CVC, you can suck it out by aspiration. I've never actually seen this done before, but hypothetically, that is what you would want to do if you have a CVC catheter. A couple other considerations that are typical for most of our procedures, but we'll just touch on here quickly to wrap this up. You want to think about bleeding. Like Cole said, you'll give that TXA at the beginning and end of the procedure. Bleeding is usually around the 200 up to 1,000. If it was up to 1,000, then this would probably be pretty abnormal. And so usually I think you see normally around the two to 300 mils for blood loss for these procedures. You, again, you want to make sure that you're protecting the nerves from nerve injury, proper positioning, and just make sure you're checking pressure points throughout the case. Hypothermia is a consideration here. Oftentimes these patients with shoulder injuries are older, and so you may want to use a fluid warmer and a lower body bear hugger as well. As far as your PONV, think about giving Decadron at the beginning of the case, some Zofran towards the end of the case. If they are really at risk for PONV, then you can give a scopolamine patch prior to surgery. Typically like to get that on an hour or two before surgery for it to really have good effects. As far as pain control, hopefully if these patients have an interscaling block, this will help manage some of their pain. You can also ask the surgeon if they're okay with Toradol. Just make sure the patient doesn't have any risk factors such as asthma or something like that that would prevent the use of Toradol. You can also give some opioids. Maybe think about using a little bit of Dilaudid during the case to get some longer-acting pain control. Again, these are all strategies that you can discuss with the rest of the anesthesia team. That pretty much wraps us up with the typical shoulder surgeries that we will see. Just keep in mind here, the biggest thing is they're in that sitting position. That's what differentiates this surgery from a lot of other ones. It is really at risk for that venous air embolism and then hypotension to the brain. So while you're trying to limit the amount of bleeding that occurs from high blood pressure, you also don't want to cause too low a blood pressure that would prevent that perfusion to the brain. And so you got to find that happy medium and that's on a patient by patient basis. So just keep that in mind and hopefully that helps out with your care plans and review and your preparation for these type of procedures. 